Hello, welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, today I'll be talking about The Shunned House uh, by Lovecraft. It's one of his longer uh, early stories. I think it might actually be the longest story we're going to look at. Um, maybe Herbert West Reanimator is a little bit longer, but that was in parts and a lot of it was recap. I mean, this is really a, a fairly lengthy story. Uh, of course, we write much longer stuff later on, but, you know, for, you know, I was struck by just how, you know, detailed, how much kind of depth there was to this story when I, when I reread it. Uh, when I first read this story, I, you know, I was interested in the idea of this, this haunted house, and I thought the setting was really good. I loved the history in it and all that, and I still love that stuff about it. I, I thought, though, like the, this explanation that there's just some kind of weird monster living under the house didn't quite work for me. It's it's very actually quite different from Lovecraft's other stories where he looks at like family genealogy, especially stuff he was writing at this time, the festival, rats in the wall, the lurking fear, which is really about family and kind of the the inheritance of, of sins from the past. Here you do have a family history and it's quite detailed. So actually one of the most detailed family histories that we get, at least since Arthur German. Um, but there's not a real clear connection between those family sins, if they existed, there are some weird stuff in that family's past, but somehow the evil in the house is, is separate from that. It's, it's some kind of strange monster. And I don't know, maybe there's a relationship, but I don't, I don't quite see it. So I was, I was kind of like, oh, it's just there's a monster under the, under the house and you can kill it. Um, so that's a little bit different, like kind of actually killing the, the monster. doesn't happen that often in, in Lovecraft stories. Um, but anyways, I rereading this, I'm actually liking the story a lot more, uh, largely for the same reasons I, I, I kind of was drawn to the story originally was the, 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 the history that, that the effort of, that Lovecraft goes into to really make a, a, a true history for this, this building. And, uh, you've got the gross outs here in the story. I think, you know, we get those again in like the color of space, some really great gross outs, some really great imagery of of just people dying horribly. We get some of that here, too. Um, so, you know, it's it's a early sort of haunted house story. You know, it's not truly haunted in the sense that it has ghosts or, or something like that, but it is it is closer to, like, the evil house that we, we meet later in Shirley Jackson and, and Stephen King. Um, so, you know, there, there's just something kind of from the origins that, that corrupted this house. So except it's external. I think what Shirley Jackson does that's so radical in this genre is to say like the house from its very construction was it was an evil entity um but anyways so yeah i'm going to talk about the shunned house today. i'm going to go in, into that story um yeah i've been taking a little bit of a break i i been do i was doing like a recording you know every day or, or every other day for for a while, quite a while um trying to get through this series of, of lovecraft stories written from 1920 to 24 and this was the last story before having to deal with a few revisions from the same period. And, you know, I just kind of got a bit exhausted. I took a week off. It started getting really hot here in Hangzhou and some really bad weather. Um, just kind of the school year is kind of draining. I mean, I'm not, I'm not out of, of work until July 4th. Today it's, it's June 5th, 14th. So I, I took a little bit of a break, but I'm back into it. I'm going to try to finish up this, this series over the next few days, looking at the Shunt House and then doing, uh, I think, three or four episodes on some of the revisions that he wrote before 24. His great re revisions come later, but we do have one really important one called uh, uh, the Under the Pyramids, 
which actually was included in the Beyond Arkham Klinger Anthology, the only revision included in there. I think it's fair to put it there. Under the Pyramids is essentially a Lovecraft story, um, unlike some of the others, where he really just did more some copy editing or, or changes. It's a mixed bag with the revisions, and I'll have to kind of do what I can to identify which ones are really mostly Lovecraft and which ones are mostly other people and, and find out what Lovecraft sort of added to the story. Um, but I'll do those next, and then, then we'll jump into the letters. So I'll, the, the second volume of the selected letters will be our next um, focus. And that I'm, I think I'm going to try to look at maybe like 10 letters in an episode. Uh, I know previously, there, or there's a podcast out there called Voluminous that's going through the letters in a lot of detail. I'm, I'm going to go more for the big picture of Lovecraft's philosophy and ideas rather than kind of dig into letters individually. Because that would take too long, it'd be too much work. But I'm going to try to I, look at every letter collected in the selected letters to some degree. Um, but we'll see how that goes. I haven't really jumped into that yet. I want to finish with these stories. So um, yeah, the other thing that I've been doing is, you know, I'm not going to be able to travel this summer. Usually, I'll go to the U.S., go to Taiwan. We got a plague, so I'm not really able to do that this summer. So I am probably going to try to actually write. So. I've been actually reading other Lovecraft stories, not strictly for this podcast, but uh, you know, reading the stuff that comes later. I just finished Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath. So much great stuff about sailors in there. Um, it's, a, it's a story I kind of avoided and never really liked, but reading, reading it again, I, I realized just how much it has to say about maritime history, like so many of the Dreamland stories. Um, anyways, you know, there's get to get to those later tales read through them again prepare to to write so i'm looking forward to hopefully doing that this summer um at least for a couple months i think i need quite a lot written down in those couple months um okay anyways the shunned house the shunned house was written in october 24th sorry in october 1924 uh october 1924 and originally published as a book published as a little booklet. Uh, it wasn't published again until, it, until 18, 1937 in Weird Tales. So, um, yeah, let's, let's see what's in this, this story. We're gonna spend a lot of time trying to work out the family history here. Uh, the story's in five parts. It wasn't published serially, it's just five separate chapters. Um, yeah, even in Weird Tales, it was published in one group. But we got five, five separate chapters. So this story is set in Providence. It's, uh, uh, not the first story to be set in, in Providence. Um, and of course, uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward will be set in Providence. So we got like the, the, the fictional geography is, is already being established by Lovecraft by this point. Towns like Kingsport, Arkham. But you still have the original uh, historical landscape here as well. And especially Providence, of course, very near and dear to Lovecraft's heart. That's where he returned after his, his time in New York City. We'll look at the New York stories um, when we get back to stories sometime later, after the letters. Um, but, you know, in, in both this and the case of Charles Dexter Ward, Lovecraft was very, really interested in the architecture, right? Because, of course, that's something that was really real and it was his daily life, daily life, his daily lived experience. Just walking around Providence, he, he saw this architecture. And it was kind of an old architecture, right? Maybe not quite as old as Kingsport's architecture. I think that was a highlight of the festival is how Kingsport really was an old town, really kind of a Puritan town. Uh, here we have a little bit more history with the architecture, but it's still a lot of old stuff. And, and Lovecraft was very, very 
deeply into that. And we see this in the case of Charles Dexter Ward going on for pages and pages of, of detail about the different buildings and, and, the, and the, the various architectural styles of the, of the town. It's also in his letters. You see a lot of Providence architecture talked about in there. Um, but anyways, uh, part one, chapter one of the story basically just introduces the house and the status of the house in like whatever, 1924 Providence. And being set in a real place, he also gives us some real historical figures here, you know, writers, um, you know, especially Poe. And, and he mentions how Poe would walk by this house and was sort of inspired by this quote. In this walk, so many times repeated, the world's greatest master of the terrible and the bazaar was obliged to pass a particular house on the eastern side of the street. A dingy, antiquated structure perched on an abruptly rising side hill with a great unkept yard dating from the time when this region was partially open country. It did not appear that he ever wrote or spoke of it, nor is there any evidence that he ever noticed it. And yet that house, to the two persons in possession of certain information, equals or outranks in horror the wildest fantasy of the genius which so often passed it unknowingly and stands starkly leering as a symbol of all that is unutterably hideous. So he, he grounds his story in real, in real history because this is our, there's a real house in Providence that you know, is this shunned house. We don't quite know. Klinger doesn't quite know which house it is, it seems. Maybe someone's kind of figured it out, but there's different addresses. Um, one was demolished. Another, um, you know, he thinks might have been 135 benefit street it's possibly the shunned house um we have 159 benefit street which was a mansion house that was demolished at some point in the 20th century so there's different houses that it might be but you know the fact that poe would have passed this house is not unreasonable and i think lovecraft is not making taking a big risk here by jumping there he of course says poe never wrote about this but he you know maybe the evil kind of inspired him in some some way and it's sort of become uh, maybe not a tourist attraction, but a well-known kind of entity in, in Providence, part of, you know, kind of an attraction for the curious, as he puts it, right? And there's a graveyard nearby, and he gets into a lot in this first part into the, the geography of it, but also the rumors, the popular traditions, the vernacular beliefs, the, the, the gossips, the, the stories passed around town by town of the rumors of the, just the unhealthy nature of this house, right? And of course, part of it is it's, I mean, everyone seems to agree that this house is unhealthy in some way, partially because so many people die there, right? Now, of course, in pre-modern times, most houses people died in. It wasn't it's not a strange thing. You didn't have hospitals quite like we do now. Maybe now people are more likely to die in a hospital. But, you know, in pre-modern times, that's where you died, right? You died in your house, in your, in your bedroom, maybe surrounded by your family if you're lucky or whatever. But, uh, you know, doctors would come to you if, if they thought they could help you. Um, so dying in houses, it's kind of a common thing, but it seems a lot of people died in this house. Um, here's what he writes. Um, I was told was why the original owners had moved out some 20 years after building the place. It was plainly unhealthy, perhaps because of the dampness and fungus growth in the cellar, the general sickness smell, the draughts of the hallways or the quality of the well and pump water. These things were bad enough, and these were all that gained belief among the people who I knew. Only the notebooks of my, legend, of my antiquarian uncle, Dr. Elu Whipple, revealed to me the length of a darker and vaguer surmises, which formed the undercurrent of folklore 
among old time servants and humble folk. So what this tells us here is we have uh, two traditions, two, two stories, one documented, one in, you know, written down in the official history of the town, of the people, kind of the official records, and then we got the rumors, and they always intersect in interesting ways in Lovecraft stories. I think that's one thing I've been pushing here for us to think about as we read these stories, is how they interact and how truthful these folk, this folklore sort of underground tradition sort of is in all this. Um, another thing hinted at here is just how Providence is becoming a modern population, a modern city, and this is like a relic to a time before that. Um, now, there, it is international, but he, he, of course, reminds us that Providence is becoming more international due to immigration. He calls it a shifting modern population, but we know what he thinks about that. We know it's uh, a suggestion of, of immigration. Um, we know that from other stories, from things like the street, which seems to be somewhat based on Providence. Um, but also we got this idea of the city sort of growing and, 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 and growing around this shunt house while this remains in the past. Right? And a lot here on community values and just community knowledge. And, and what's the belief? Well, is it haunted? Certainly shunned. No one wants anything to do with the house. But is it haunted? It's not really clear. Is it just unlucky? Is the house just unlucky? Is it just bad luck for whoever lives there or owns it? Um, you know, it's deserted because it can't be rented. No one wants to live there. No one's stupid enough to live there. And the people that do don't stay very long um, or, you know, whatever. But, you know, and usually they don't know about the history of it. They're from outsiders, working class people that will live there for a while. But eventually they leave. Almost impossible to rent. So the house just sort of sits there. It seems to cause mental decline. There, that's part of the rumors and the story there, too, that the house causes, uh, like, a physical and mental decline, right? Now, is it this kind of fungus growth from the basement? That's certainly a true thing. We, there's plenty of great uh, flora in this story, these different uh, mushrooms and, and funguses uh, in and around the house, in the basement of the house, right? That seems to be tied to this creature that lives there. We don't really learn about the creatures until the final pages of the story. But, you know, something certainly quite wrong here. The plant life is wonderful. It's, it's kind of... Out, out, it's, it's there's something out unworldly about fu these fungus, but I think the cool thing about fungus is they often appear that way. You, you're walking around in the woods and you see some fungus you've never seen before, and sometimes it really does look like it's almost like an alien species, right? A lot of that stuff really looks bizarre. Uh, we have trees here, just like in the lurking fear, we have the trees. Uh, in my childhood, the shunned house was vacant with barren, gnarled, and terrible trees, long, queerly pale, pale grass and a nightmarishly misshapen weeds in the high terraced yards where the birds never linger. Um, but as boys, they, they kind of hang out at the shunned house, dare each other to kind of see how far they can get into the house or whatever. Um, you know, we sort of saw a little bit of this on the, in, in the unnameable, right? The approaching of the haunted house by, by young people. Here you have it as well. Um, you know, that's just, it's just the common neighborhood haunted house where kids will dare each other to go there. Um, but we're reminded at the end of chapter one that really the worst part about this house, everyone agrees, is the cellar, is the cellar, which uh, has this kind of fungus, it's humid, it's, it's, it's a little bit, uh, and the, the biggest thing is this fungus growth, these white fungal growths that grow there. And here we get this kind of outerworldly kind of looking of the, of the fungus. Now they might be drawn from real life. It's just I just think that's the nature of mushrooms and fungus is that they they look like they're aliens species in a way. 
Um, quote, those fungi grotesquely like the vegetation in the yard outside were truly horrible to the outliers, to the outline, to their outlines. Detestable parodies of toadstools and Indian pipes, whose like we had never seen in any other situation. They rotted quickly and at one stage became slightly phosphorescent, so that the nocturnal passerby sometimes spoke of witch fires glowing behind the broken panes of the fetter spreading windows. So you're actually seeing light coming from the house, even though no one lives there because these fungus become phosphorescent when they decay. Wonderful stuff here. Really, really great introduction to the story. Uh, the, just the introducing this house and setting up a great mystery about what this house is. We know there's a family history uh, as well, and that's what we start to get into in part two. Part two is, is actually the history of the, the shunned house. So we actually get the story of the house in parts two and three. It's the bulk of the story, actually, is the history of the house. And we get it backwards. Actually, chapter one is like the current state. Chapter two is the more recent owners, the Harris family. And then we, in part three, we get the story of the people who originally owned the land because the Harris's built the, the house itself on the land. But we get we kind of get deeper and deeper history over time, right? We've, we've seen this in Rats on the Wall and, and other, this, this narrative is like the deeper you dig into the story, the farther back you can go. Um, and so we get this uh, reverse history telling. Of course, we get it in uh, uh, the Ma Mountains of Madness too. But the rats on the wall, really great example of this inverse storytelling. So how to tell you this history? Um, he gets most of this stuff, our narrator, I should say, gets most of this stuff from this guy, Dr. Whipple. Dr. Whipple is friend. He's kind of a local historian of, of, of some sort. Um, he's actually a doctor, but he's kind of an amateur historian. And he's interested in kind of abnormal art. And, and I, I'm reminded of, again, that book, Wastelands, by... Um, Scott Poole, is it something Scott Poole? His last name, Poole, uh, about culture after the Great War. And that book really gets into like art. It has a lot of sections about art and, and weird, strange, abnormal art that was really being explored by the surrealists, by the Dadaists and others. Um, and it was really popular at the time, right? So that's kind of in the air of Lovecraft's when he's writing this, it's just the weird art. And I think it's been a, so kind of almost an obsession of Lovecraft at this time in his career. Um, you know, in the early 20s, he writes a lot about art and, and the artistic eye. It all culminates in Pickman's model, I think, but uh, we, we see it later, too. He's, he's very visual in, in a lot of ways. Uh, even though he wrote, I, he, did, he did draw some, but I don't think he was a great artist. But he's very visual in his thinking at times, and he, he is kind of fascinated by this abnormal art. And so is Whipple. Um, so he's a bachelor, so he has lots of time to kind of dig into the history of this house and the family and share it with our narrator. He's got a, his own history is kind of interesting that he, and Lovecraft just wants to add it, so he adds it. He doesn't have to, but he does. Whipple himself is tied to the sea, for instance. Uh, his ancestor, his grandfather, Captain Whipple, burnt a, 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 a schooner in 1772 before uh, the American Revolution. So, I don't know, some kind of privateer. I don't know what war that would have been that he would have done that in. But um, I think this comes up in the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Similar time period, anyways. That, well, I'll, I'll talk about that with the case of Charles Dexter Ward, because that is set during the American Revolution. And there's really, I think, something he's trying to say there about the American Revolution. Um, but Whipple's ancestor was also one of the people who voted 
for Rhode Island's independence in 1776. Um, but we just get a little bit of his, his history, right? Um, kind of the, the colonial roots of the Shunned House, if we will. But anyways, we, we finally, he, he's able to show this historical textual evidence in the, and through this research and share it with our narrator. And, and so we get the, the story. And I actually kind of wrote it out here. Um, so I'll just share you kind of my notes here. Um, so William Harris is the first owner. He's the builder of the Shunned House. Um, he dies in 1765. And the Shunned House itself was built in 1763. So that's when the house was built. So that's the earliest history we have of it. William Harris. Now, he's also tied to the sea. Uh, quote, Harris was a substantial merchant and seaman in the West India trade connected with the firm of Obadiah Brown and his, and his nephews. So that's a real historical connection as well. We're going to see a lot of this in Charles Dexter Ward too. I think the Providence really is a maritime town in the press mind. And it, it's repeated it often. I think it historically, it's just a rea reality. He's not making anything up here. Um, you know, I think that's what's so fascinating. As much as he is, Lovecraft is kind of about building a wall and kind of closing off society to these immigrant influences, right? He has to acknowledge that these are maritime towns and and that's what brings in these traditions and these horrors come in through the sea. Um, now, it's not quite clear what he brings with him, but as we see in other stories, especially Innsmouth, people who travel abroad to the West Indies or the East Indies, they bring back weird stuff, weird ideas, traditions, or, you know, or guerrilla wives or something. They bring back something. Uh, it's not really clear what he would have brought back. But anyways, he comes back... Um, and he's rich enough to build this, this house in 1763. He dies two years later, of course. Now he's married to a woman named, uh, uh, what's her name? Roby Dexter, or Roby Harris, right? And she's not gonna die until 1783, but she sort of goes mad and she has a very, very, um, oh no, so she dies in 1773. So she lives on a few more years. Uh, Mercy Dexter, her sister, stays in the house for a little bit longer. But anyways, that's the original couple that's living in the, in the shunned house. And they both die within a, a handful of years of the house being built. So they already have some kids. They already have four kids. A fifth kid is born in the house, but is still born. And no kid will be born in that house for a quarter century and a half. So essentially, at never, never. A, a kid will never survive being born in there. But pretty quickly, uh, the Harrises fall ill to some kind of of disease. Some of the servants die of it. William Harris dies in 1765. Um, you know, and the argument is, well, he was kind of involved with Martinique with the Caribbean trade. And so he just got sort of sick from that. That's where he kind of brought the illness there. So the, it gets blamed on the tropics initially, right? That there's sort of a mini epidemic of this imported illness. But uh, Roby Harris, uh, Roby Dexter, or it's Nay Dexter, um, Roby Harris, she, she, uh, you know, her firstborn son dies two years later. Uh, after that, um, in, a, in, in 1768, she just sort of goes mad and she ends up being confined to the upper part of the house. Um, you know, this kind of creepy upper story of the house where you lock away someone who's afflicted with something is, is something we'll see in, in the color of space. And kind of care of the house falls to uh, Mercy Dexter, 
uh, Roby's sister, and she's going to live until 1783, taking care of the house. But by this point, we already started to have rumors. Uh, you know, servants don't want to work there. It's hard to get people to work there. She has to finally get servants out of town. Uh, a woman named Anne White and another man named Zenas Lau. Anne White is actually very key in starting the rumors about the town. Quote, it was Anne White who first gave definite shape to the sinister idle talk. Mercy should have known better than to hire anyone from Newsnack Hill County. For that remote bit of backwoods was then and now the seat of the most uncomfortable superstitions. So rural traditions are already sort of there, and Anne White is able to kind of feed into that and build off of those traditions. So um, now Mrs. Harris, Roby Ro uh, Harris, stays living in the house, but she starts having these, these wild dreams that get documented here. And White is eventually fired for her gossiping. Now the kids, though, they leave um, and they go live. The, the, the son, the oldest son is named William Harris, William Harris Jr. He goes to live with a cousin, Peleg Harris. And so he's kind of out inside the house and that's gonna be a common trope here. The Harrises who inherit this house, they're, they're always not gonna be living there, right? So they can kind of live out their lives. Um, but the house certainly is getting you know, being identified as being sick in some way, right? Now, Mrs. Harris's, Roby Harris's decline is pretty horrific uh, stuff. Um, quote, just what Miss Harris cried out in her fits of violence tradition hesitates to say, or rather presents such extravagant accounts that they nullify themselves through sheer absurdity. Certainly it sounds absurd to hear that a woman educated only in the rudiments of French had shouted for hours in a coarse and idiomatic form of that language, or that the same person alone and guarded complained wildly of a staring thing that bit and chewed at her. In 1772, the servant Zenas died, and when Mrs. Harris heard of it, she laughed with a shocking delight utterly formed her. The next year, she herself died and was laid to rest. So that's the end of the first generation of the people living in the, or who are connected to the Shunt House. Right. Now, the French thing is, is really interesting because we're going to learn that the original owners of the land were, were French settlers to this part of of the world and it's never really explained to my satisfaction why because they don't inherit anything biological to it, it it's like it, in rats on the wall you see this degradation into older languages that were spoken by the local people there but there was some kind of tradition there there was some kind of a passing on of a, of a tradition here's just the land is what's passed on and the evil is external it's not internal to the family itself it's an external evil it's more like the color of space in this way um, but it's never really explained why French, they kind of, they're able to speak this French. If the evil is, is somehow external, it's under the ground, literally, um, how does that actually change their minds? And why French? Why not whatever language is spoken by the monster? Um, I don't know. Um, maybe, some, maybe someone who studied this, this story more carefully knows the answer to this, but I just think there's a bit of a disconnect here. It's never really um, explained. Um, now, it strikes me notable that the Shunt House is lived in during the American Revolutionary period, and then it's abandoned, right? And, you know, I don't know really how to interpret that fully yet, except that I know the case of Charles Dexter Ward is going to involve a very, very strong subplot of the American Revolution and the effort to erase uh, evils of the colonial period, uh, specifically Kerwin, but in a subtext of that is the slave trade. The slave trade is what's being forgotten and, and ignored by the, the heroes of that story. 
at least the 18th century part of the story, the heroes of that part of the story, they want to forget it. But anyways, it is being lived in during the American Revolutionary Period. So now the only one caring for the house is Mercy Dexter, and she begins her own decline, and she eventually dies in 1783, right at the end of the American Revolutionary War. Uh, the American Revolution, I mean, the, the Treaty of Paris, right, which resolved the American Revolution was 1783. So it's the end of the American Revolution uh, in, in a very real sense. And, you know, that's when William Harris uh, basically closes it. And I don't know, am, am, I, am, I, am I crazy to notice the date here? To say, at the very time that the United States said, the past is dead, we're something new even though it's not true, right? That the, the evils of America live on in slavery, genocide, empire. But you sort of pretend. You close, you shutter the shunned house. It's like shuttering the past of, of the British rule. I don't know. I don't know. I, maybe I'm reading too much into it here. But I think Lovecraft also chose that date on purpose. So the house then is passed on to William Harris, Jr., who wants nothing to do with it? He basically, they get a, an apartment. Him and his wife get an apartment at a, at a hotel in town. And that's where their, their son, Dute, D-U-T-E-E, -E, is born. So we're already to the third generation with Dute, Dute Harris. And then what's the, uh, the tradition of being raised by cousins is passed on, where Dute is brought up by Rathborn Harris, um, his, his, his own... Um, Pelic's son, so this is like the same family that was raising William. Harrison is used when they, when they shut down the house. Um, now, they can't completely detach themselves from the house. It's not, they can't really sell it. They can't rent it. Um, and, the, and then the public demands that they do some basic care for the house, right? So they have to have some connection to the house, at least maintaining it for, for the public good, right? Um, now, Dute has a very, very interesting life uh, when he grows up. Um, he becomes this, he's a sailor. He's, he served in the War of 1812, right? Um, and so he's got this uh, kind of maritime connection as well. He grew up to be a privateersman and his great claim to fame was service in the War of 1812. And we have kind of a stormborn situation here. Quote, he returned unharmed, married in 1814 and became a father on that memorable night in September 23rd, 1815 when a great gale drove the waters of the bay over half the town and floated a tall sloop well up Wismender Street so that the mass almost tapped the Harris windows in a symbolic affection that the new boy welcomed was a seaman's son, end quote. Uh, the sea being passed on, uh, just like these traditions get passed on, just like these evils get passed on, uh, so does the sea and so does a connection to the sea. Um, you know, it, Lovecraft doesn't do much with this in this story, but it's, it's on his mind, I'm convinced. Of, of the sea being some kind of source of evil. It, it's, you know, the original people who settled this land were immigrants from France. Um, so much of the Harris family has some kind of tie to the sea. Uh, there's something here. There's something going on here, too. Especially Whipple, the guy digging into this history. He's got ties to the sea. Something really there. Um, but anyways, welcome. Welcome, Harris. Uh, he's going to die fairly young. He dies in 1864 at the Battle of Fredericksburg. So he dies in the Civil War, and Dute Harris um, survives him. 
But Welcome would have his own son, Archer Harris, who dies in 1916, and his son, Carrington Harris, is the one who currently owns the Shun House at the time of the narration of the story. Archer, his father dying just a few years before the story takes place. So that is the Harris line. And basically, chapter two of this story, I think it's the longest part of the entire story, um, almost 10 pages, just covers the history of the Harris family, right? And their relationship with the Shunned House. And we, you know, basically when people stop living there, the horror sort of is gone, right? But something really changes in recent history here. This is, this is, um, this is what he, this is how the section ends actually. Carrington Harris, last of the male line, knew it only as a deserted and somewhat picturesque center of legend until I told him my experience. He had meant to tear it down to build an apartment house on the site, but after my account decided to let it stand, installed plumbing, and rent it. Nor has he had any difficulty in obtaining tennis. The horror had gone. Right? Now, it's obviously not gone, but maybe it's been forgotten? I don't know. It's a really weird line because it doesn't really fit with the rest of the story, uh, where the rumors of the local people in Providence are that this is still an evil house, and still, it's still shunned. How is it shunned if he's able to get tenants? Right? Uh, maybe, like, it's suggested at one point in the story that the only people who will rent this house will be, like, immigrants or working-class people, vagrants who are passing through or something like that. So, you know, but the horror is gone when Carrington doesn't really believe in it. Maybe there's an aspect of belief in the story, too, or forgetting, right? Maybe in this case, forgetting the story, forgetting the horror actually allows him to suppress that horror, you know, but he has told that story. He just doesn't want to choose. He just chooses not to believe it. So I don't know. There's something kind of interesting going on in this part of it. So uh, then we get part three. So part three gives us the deeper history of the land. Um, after he learns the Harris's story, he kind of goes back a little bit deeper. And he, and he goes into two things. He goes into like the deep history of the land the pre people who owned this land before the Harris's. And then he also gets a lot more into rumors, traditions, folklore, right? Part two is based on like textual evidence, the official history. Part three, chapter three, is based on rumors, mythology, the stories of Anne White in particular, because she was the real one. The, in part two, she's just a gossip monger. In part three, she's like a brilliant researcher who, who knows more about the house than anyone else, it seems. So this is kind of the high point of the story for me is uh, we kind of the the formal history gives way to mythological history to folklore to to legends and rumors and traditions and it's it's really wonderful I, I don't know if I can go through all the things that are talked about um, kind of the tension between rationality and the supernatural and the superstition the various deaths associated with the Shund House and how these kind of mythologies of these deaths uh, snowball. Uh, new illnesses appear, right? Madnesses types of appear. There's also class issues described in this section. Quote, the really inexplicable thing was the way in which the victims, ignorant people for the ill-smelling and widely shunned house could now be rented to no others, would babble maledictions in French, a language they could not possibly have studied to any extent, right? The fact that only the poor people are renting the house. And then on top of the legends of Anne White, her rumors, the rumors that she emphasized are something in the cellar. That's the kind of the heart of her contribution to the story. And of course, she lived there, so she had some sense it was in the cellar. But also, we get family legends uh, carried on, and we get a little bit more details 
but more from a vernacular point of view of what the Harris family has been saying about the house and what they're into. Um, you know, uh, quote, this is about Dute Harris, the old seaman who had survived his son Welcome's death in battle by two years had not himself known the legend, but recalled that his earliest nurse, the ancient Maria Robbins, seemed darkly aware of something which might have lent a weird significance to the French ravings of Roby Harris. So he gets something, but he gets it from the nurse. He gets it from the working class. So even the people who own this house don't know the full story of the house, but the people who know it are the people who work there, who live there. I mean, just what a powerful nature discussion here about class and knowledge and how knowledge is truths are carried on by the the working class right you know think of even something like slavery right at a time when you had the, the lost cause ideology rising Jim Crow kind of a whitewashing of the realities of slavery with books like Gone with the Wind or whatever and at the same time you have the you have black people who of course lived in slavery carrying on a very different uh, narrative, but they weren't professional historians. They didn't have the power to put up statues. They didn't have the, usually there were a few, but generally they didn't. Uh, they carried on this stories of the reality of slavery in their churches and in the schools they set up and, and in their family histories, right? So really, really, I think this is a powerful point that Lovecraft is trying to make here about the nature of, of, of knowledge. All right, so then our narrator, after going into these legends, even goes into Indian legends, by the way. Um, at least tries to find them, you know. He really can't say he can't find a, an Indian legend, but, you know, maybe there's something there. But where he is able to find some history is about the, pre, the earliest owners of the land, um, at least non-Indian owners of the land. Um, and this is not in the official records, like, of the, of the particular plot. It's... Yes, they have to dig somewhere else, right? He has to come across to somewhere else in his research. So he finds the lease, 1697, of a small tract of ground to an Etienne Roulette and his wife. At last, the French element had appeared. That and another deeper element of horror, which the name conjured up in the darkest recesses of my weird and heterogeneous reading, and I feverishly studied the plating of the locality as if I had been cutting through partially straightened a back street between 1747 and 1758. I found what I expected. That where the shun house now stood, the roulettes had laid out a graveyard behind the one story and at a cottage. So you have a kind of the graveyard thing. Um, yeah, it's kind of overlapping themes here, like the Indian graveyard, the haunted house, the kind of the legacy of the parentage, the family history, and this monster that lives under the, the house. So, I mean, that's the least interesting part of it, actually. The kind of the punchline to the story is the least interesting part to me. But who are these people? Well, they're Huguenots. The roulettes are Huguenots, so they come to the Americas. Um, and there's a lot of like weird religious stuff going on with the roulette family. It's not just that they're Protestants. They are into some strange stuff. Um, now, they're kind of driven out of wherever they're from, and it seems it's not because they're Huguenots. It seems there's something else going on with them. Quote, the swarthy Etienne Roulet. Less apt at agriculture than at reading queer books and drawing queer diagrams was given a clerical post at the warehouse of Pardon Tillenhouse Wharf, far in Town Street. There had, however, been a riot of some sort later on, perhaps 40 years later, after Old Roulette's dead, death, and no one seems to hurry or the family after that. So there's these occult beliefs that are brought to the New World. And so I'll repeat a theme I mentioned before, and that's the America as a marchland. 
uh, stole them from Bernard Balin, this book, The People in a British North America. This idea that traditions, however weird they might be in, in Europe, are always likely going to get weirder in the Americas as people get more disconnected from the center of culture, the center of those traditions. They are kind of free to go wild. So yeah, so Etienne Roulette, they build this graveyard, driven from their homes in each Greenwich for their weirdness. Um, and then we have the son, uh, Paul Roulet, who's the one who apparently provoked this riot that gets mentioned earlier. And he was into this weird cult stuff too. Um, and there's even an ancestor, uh, Jacques Roulet, 1598. So I guess he's the original migrants to the Americas or of that generation. He's, no, he's killed back in France, I guess. No, he's killed in France as a witch by the Paris Parliament. No, he was condemned to, to death as a witch, but saved by the Parliament and shut into a manhouse. He had been found covered with blood and shreds of flesh in the woods shortly after the killing and rendering of a, of a boy by a pair of wolves. One wolf was seen to lope away unhurt. Such a pretty hearthside tale with queer significance as to the name and place, but I decided that Providence gossip could not have generally known of it. Had they known, the coincidence of names would have brought some drastic and frightful action, end quote. So there's, again, the power of the vernacular traditions being hinted at. It's like, if this has been part of the rumors, then, you know, that would have had consequences. It would have, you know, action would have come from it, right? It's not just traditions. It's not just stories that get passed on. They actually affect how people behave and act. All right, so most of this story is history and folklore. That's why I like it. Uh, the last 10 pages, parts chapters 4 and 5, are just the vigil, are the, the, the investigation. After you take all this historical information, all this historical knowledge, and apply it to their, their investigation. Right? Um, so he ends up going with Eli Whipple, this doctor, this one who kind of also helped him dig into the, the past of the house. And they, they appear to apply science to it. And there's interesting things here about like hygienic laws here. Um, you know, that this has seemed to be an unhealthy house, right? And, you know, of course, in the early 20th century, there was this emphasis on hygienic. Some people even called this hygienic modernity, right? This focus on hygiene of cleanliness. Personal, mental, but also physical in the city itself and in public, you know, resources. Um, Eli Whipple, quote, had lived according to the hygienic laws. He had preached as a physician. But for what happened later, would be in full vigor today. Around. So he kind of lives, would have lived a long time, but something bad happens to him, right? Um, but, you know, their approach to studying this house is to do it scientifically, to use reason to it. Um, quote, we were not, as I had said, in any sense, childlessly superstitious, but scientific study and reflection had taught us that the known universe of three dimensions embraces the merest fraction of the whole cosmos of substance and energy. In this case, an overwhelming preponderance of evidence from numerous authentic sources point to the tenacious existence of certain forces of great power. So even though there's a suggestion there's something beyond what we observe normal science, you know, this is, of course, the science of the time in which the boundaries of what is known and unknown start to break down with quantum physics, um, which is, you know, more and more people are reading about that. It's in the newspapers. It's being more popularly known. The old assumptions about science begin to break down. But this allows Lovecraft then to say, we're going to explore the, this weird stuff scientifically, right? 
And now, even before they actually get to the physical, like, investigation, we get a little bit more pondering about the origins of this abnormality. Because, like me, I think it's not clear to our narrator, or maybe even to Lovecraft, how all these things fit together. The, the graveyard, the roulette family's occult traditions, the riot, the riot of Paul Roulet, the... Um, and eventually what they find under the house, the life, whatever's in the basement, it's not clear what's in there. Uh, there's a suggestion that it's all sort of, this original sin though is tied in some way to the Roulet family. Quote, that the family of Roulet had possessed an abnormal affinity for the outer circles of entity, dark spheres, which for normal folk hold only repulsion and terror. The recorded history seems to prove. Had not then the riots of those bygone 1730s set moving certain kinetic patterns in the morbid brain of one or more of them, notably the sinister Paul Roulet, which obscurely survived the bodies murmured and buried in the mob, and continued to function in some multi-dimensional space along the original lines of force determined by the frantic hatred and the encroachment, encroaching community. So that's, that's kind of, uh, I don't know, it's cool stuff to think about. I mean, he kind of really goes into the new science in this, this chapter and how new science is providing new theories about the nature of reality, which kind of open up all sorts of possibilities for our, our investigators. Um, now, they even say it might not be like even any entity that's causing this evil, that it's just like uh, pure energy, right? So they get together their equipment. Um, you know, we got a nice description of all the stuff they bring. Um, Quote, we devised two weapons to fight it, a large and specially fitted Crookes tube operated by powerful storage batteries and provided with peculiar screens and reflectors in case it proved intangible and oppo opposable only by vigorous destruction ethers radiate or vigorously destructive ether radiations and a pair of military flamethrowers of the sort used in the World War in case it proved partially material and susceptible to mechanical destruction. For like the superstitious Exeter rustics, we were prepared to burn the thing's heart out if heart existed to burn. So they basically set up a vigil. So it's kind of like a lurking fear in that way where they go into the house and try to hunker down to see what they can find. They begin at night, 10 p.m., to do that. And we have this kind of light from the phosphorescent fungus lighting the, the basement. Really creepy and weird stuff. So what happens is, uh, well, Whipple begins to have his dreams. Kind of, we've seen dreams before associated with the house, with uh, the early uh, Harris ancestors. Roby Harris had dreams. And Whipple has some dreams as well. Um, they're not fully described because they're not, our narrator doesn't have access to the dreams itself. He just has his uncle's kind of, Whipple's the uncle, these facial expressions, which... Uh, Quote, are not characteristic of him at all. This rational, hygienic person, not prone to having weird, strange, you know, strange dreams like this. Um, and he starts to speak in French, too. Um, I recognized something about them which filled me with icy fear until I recalled the breadth of my uncle's education and the interminable translations he had made from the anthropological and antiquarian articles of the Rêve de du Monde. So what's that? That's like a magazine from the early 19th century. 19th century, apparently, Paris Magazine. Um, so, but he knows French. Um, so it's not as mysterious as some of these other people speaking French. But uh, 
but he was nevertheless muttering in French. So he got this weird French connection. And again, I don't know how that's explained. The connect, you know, why French? Except that the original owners of the land, the ones who built the graveyard, are French. Maybe it's the spirits of these dead uh, ancestors that that are buried there are somehow connected to this whole thing as well. So it's a weird night, but eventually he sleeps too, and he himself has his own dreams that he's able to re relate. So dreams were talked about before. We know other characters in the house were dreaming, and here's our first real first-hand account of one of these dreams you're having in the house. Um, I was haunted with dreams of the most disturbing kind. I felt in my visions a cosmic and abysmal loneliness, with hostility surging from all sides upon some prison where I lay confined. I seemed bound and gagged and taunted by the echoing yells of distant multitudes who thirsted for my blood. My uncle's face, that seems to be almost like the, the riot. Right. Uh, my uncle's face came to me with less pleasant associations than in waking hours, and I recall many futile struggles and attempts to scream. It was not a pleasant dream, and for a second, I was not sorry for the echoing shriek you know, that, that woke him up. Um, okay, now we get to the final section, the final few pages of the story, chapter five. Um, it all comes pretty quickly to an end here, right? So much of the story is just historical background, that when we finally get to the climax, it, it happens very quickly. So as part five opens up, as chapter five opens up, we see the transformation of Whipple. Whipple is the first to be physically affected by, by this unhealthiness, this uncleanness, this evil that is this in, the, in this house, right? And we get some really, really awesome body horror here. Like Whipple's uh, hand turns his claws, his face starts to melt, he starts to transform, he kind of liquefies, his face sort of liquefies. Um, but his face also goes through changes where it changes into different forms of people who lived in the house before. We presume the roulette's faces too, but doesn't know what they look like. But he doesn't know what the Harris's look like and he sees for a moment Roby Harris's face in Whipple's face, um, the face of Mercy Dexter, he gets able to draw this from pictures he's seen of these people, but um, you know, more or less the face is melting. It's just great. It goes on for a couple of pages where, here where we see the, the whole host of transformations of poor, um, poor Whipple as he's been kind of taken over by this, this evil in the cellar. Well, anyways, he has to escape the house after this. There's not much uh, he can do about poor Whipple at this point, so he escapes. But he comes back, he comes back prepared. And so he, he comes back with uh, sulfuric acid, like huge canisters of sulfuric acid, pickaxe, gas mask. So he's gonna wear a gas mask now. Some really great World War I imagery here actually, because a lot of World War I stuff here, you know, like the flamethrowers, the equipment they're using, the, um, you know, the chemical warfare, that's how ultimately this thing is defeated, is through some kind of form of chemical warfare, literally. Um, but anyways, he orders all this stuff and he comes back, and, and in the last few pages, it all happens very, very quickly. He starts to dig into, uh, under the cellar, to find out what's, what's under there. And before too long, he finally reaches something, and he reaches something which is essentially the elbow of, of a creature. Quote, still more I scraped and then abruptly I leapt out of the hole and away from the filthy thing, frantically unstopping and tilting the heavy carboys and precipitating their course of context one after another down that charnel gulf and upon that unthinkable abnormality whose tight elbow he had, I had seen. So he sees this 
elbow, and then he starts pouring the sulfuric acid into onto this creature to destroy it. So whatever was down there, he kills because it, after he pours all four of these carboys of sulfuric acid down onto this creature, uh, he leaves the house. Uh, he, he kind of fills in the hole, and the house begins to repair itself. It starts to be not be it starts to be normal again. The next spring, no more pale grass and strange weeds came up in the shrouded houses, shunned house terrace garden, and shortly afterwards, Carrington rented the place. Maybe that's it. Maybe this is. I was reading this too chronologically, where he said he can't. He, the horror is gone, is because he had already killed it. When he talks to Carrington Harris about this, it's uh, and he tells him the story that the horror had already been gone because our narrator killed it. I guess that's it. So that was just me not being really paying attention, as I often do. Usually, I catch my mistakes eventually. But like the trees uh, begin to bear apples. You don't have all the fungus anymore. Anyways, everything's better. The, the evil is defeated. So it's still not really clear to me what though the relationship between like this graveyard and the roulets and their weird occult traditions. And because this monster seems to have been there forever. It's just like an eternal monster below the surface of the, of the, of the house. But I think that's okay. I think the house, the story is just great. Uh, especially as it digs into the history of this, of this one little building, and apparently a real building that Lovecraft himself passed often as he walked around the streets of Providence. I guess we can be a little disappointed in that uh, all this talk about new science and uh, the extrasensory realities, all that stuff, it, it comes to just be a monster under there. But th there's some level, there's something still that's not explained, some connection between that and the other thing. So that's still sort of unexplained. That's still in the realm of the unnameable, I suppose. So uh, so it sort of works. Um, I think it's a great story. I think it's one of the most uh, visual stories he wrote up to this point. It's, it's got beautiful imagery, especially with the fungus and the cellar and the, and the trees and all that stuff. It's a lot of fun. And I just love the, the care and the attention to, given to telling the history of this place. So, um, yeah, one of, one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. Um, so what's next? Well, this technically finishes up this second series of stories, series three, or season three, if you will, of this podcast. But I got to do the revision, so I'm not quite done. I am going to do a few episodes, three or four, where I'll look at the revisions Lovecraft wrote up to 24, helped to write. Um, a couple by Sonia Green, um, what, uh, the Harry Houdini one uh, under the pyramids, which is all Lovecraft, basically. Uh, some others aren't as much Lovecraft. So I might do two in one episode. I'll do a couple episodes where we'll look at two of them. Um, and I'll try to talk about to what degree they're Lovecraft's works, to what degree they're other people's work that Lovecraft just revised. They're collectively called revisions, but they really run the gamut of being almost totally Lovecraft's to being... He was just like the copy editor of them. Um, but anyways, they're fun to look at. They're um, often thematically quite close to what Lovecraft you know, was kind of writing and, and, and looking at anyways. So we'll do those. We'll spend a few episodes on those, and then we'll jump into the, uh, the letters. I look forward to that. Um, try something new. So, uh, yeah, that does it. So leave your own thoughts about the Shun House uh, below or send me a tweet. 
uh, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I will see you next time with some of the revisions. Thanks for, for listening.